You washed up. Sorry? Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please tell us what you were singing about, what this was. The name of it, what's the name of the song? The name of the song is Zelene Jeto Zelene, and it's a song of welcome in Ukraine. So when guests come to your house, in a Ukrainian household, they greet you with bread and salt, and it's a, a symbol of friendship, it's a symbol of prosperity, it's a symbol of unity, um, all good things. And so when guests are presented with bread and salt, usually this is the song that's sung. And there are variations from region to region, but the idea is that people are gathering, the grain is being harvested, the rye is being harvested, the oats are being harvested, and uh, guests are being welcomed into the home and at the table and, um, and are being welcomed from the soul. Wow, okay, beautiful. Uh, I was talking to Natalie earlier, and for those of us who worked with Peter Strusko, he was Ukraine. 
I mean, it, we, we thought of Ukraine, we thought of Peter. Now, sadly, Peter died a year ago uh, to the day of the Russian invasion, which was, uh, God bless him, and I think he's here with us tonight. Anna, his daughter, I'm a little touched. Anna Ostrusko is here tonight. Thank you, Anna, for bringing Peter with you. And you sang that song at Peter's burial. I did. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about the, the fact that it's a welcoming song and it's a greeting song. And yet, you know, for a lot of us, there is a sense of, you know, that passing over that transition that can also be a welcoming or a greeting. You were telling me about his record label, Peter's record label. Yeah, so his record label well, it was called um, Borderland, and that is actually the translation of the name Ukraina, which is the name Ukraine. Yeah. We're so grateful to have Natalie with us today. It just felt like a way to, I don't know, make a connection, have a sense of solidarity to what's going on over there, because I know a lot of you are probably feeling like me. We don't know what to do, and uh, we can donate, we can, we can pay attention, I think that's important. Uh, but the music that she's bringing today will also help, I think, make this wonderful connection. So thank you, Natalie, for coming. Thank you. Natalie will be back uh, two more times to sing. So this is just song number one. but you say you read them all, so I'm hoping you'll read this one. I've been buying your spices at your store in Uptown for many, many years, but I just recently signed up for your mailing list. Now, when I started reading your almost daily newsletters, I was sort of amazed in and amongst your promotions for these wonderful herbs and spices that you sell. You were telling us that cooks care, and cooks are the ones who heal the world. And then you were launching into these beautifully written, though strongly worded, opinions about those in power who you didn't think did care about others. Those who supported harsh immigration bans and encouraged bullying to LGBTQ kids, trumpeted the elimination of voting rights, prayed for deadly restrictions on women's rights to choose, scoffed at Black Lives Matter, danced in the face of disinformation about COVID, and then, to pull us all together, you're offering accessories with every order, like colorful hug pins and love people magnets and Black Lives Matter heart stickers. And you were creating signature seasonings and spice blends that backed up your strong statements, like justice, created as a response to the House vote for impeachment number one in 2019, which is now sadly prescient, isn't it? 
Justice is a salt-free blend of shallots, garlic, onion, green peppers, chives, and green onion, seasoned liberally, you said. Or Arizona Dreaming, another salt-free mix of ancho chili pepper, onion, garlic, paprika, cumin, citric acid, Mexican oregano, cilantro, lemon peel, chipotle pepper, red pepper, jalapeno, cocoa, and natural smoke flavoring. Okay, so this seasoning, you said, was inspired by an incident in Arizona in 2010. An elementary school celebrated the culture and diversity of its students by painting a mural on their wall, which was greeted with racial slurs shouted from passing motorists. Who does that, Bill? Who creates a seasoning to pay tribute to a racially traumatized elementary school in Arizona? Who does that? You do, Bill. You know, I grew up in Arizona. I'm really, really moved by this backstory. Plus, it's really, really good. I mean, it really is, guys. It's really, really good. We put it on everything. And it's salt-free, which is terrific because my husband is on a low-salt diet. Sorry, Bill, did I tell you I have a husband? Yeah, I have a husband. And he loves you, too. I will stand with you with fearless attitude in gracious gratitude. There's people everywhere who still choose to care. We will stand with you because your intent is true. We know the world's still good. We can fill it up with every kind of very kind people. Bill, you said that your decades of traveling to spice markets around the world had opened your eyes to the immense needs globally that continually go unmet because of power and greed and the sheer lack of compassion. And the more you question the lack of compassion in our elected officials, the louder your critics became. And then the hashtag boycott started, and gained steam, and the ugly comments filled your inbox. And you lost customers, Bill, tons of them. They basically told you to shut up and dribble, right, Bill? Like, shut up and spice, or whatever that would be. You know, I, I Bill, I had a shut up and dribble moment. It was after one of our very first live Island of Discarded Women shows, and two women came up to me after the show, and they told me that they were very disappointed in the show. And I said, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. They go, well, we came because we thought you were going to do your funny voices from that radio show. And you didn't do them, and we were very, very disappointed. <laughs> and I said, well, no, actually, Sam, I'm doing something, I'm doing something different here. No, 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 I, 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 know, I know you obviously are, but you have to do those funny voices. That's why we know you. That's why we love you. Oh. Oh, okay, well, sorry about that, but uh, I just, I have a need to speak up and speak out about societal norms, and, and I'm so inspired by other women's stories, and so I created this platform for us to raise our collective voices. Well, I guess that's okay, but could you also do your funny voices? <laughs> In other words, Sue, just shut up and dribble, okay? But despite all the backlash you got, Bill, you hung in there. 
You continue to call out those who you feel are against decency and democracy and in kindness. And because of that, thousands of new customers have signed up to shop for your special box sets like your Remember January 6th box, one half cup jar of justice, one fourth cup jars, mural of flavor, and pasta sprinkle, plus tip cards, and an I Will Vote sticker, 1895. You became the spice guy who was getting under the skin of right-wing media by preaching against discrimination and bigotry, one jar of Penzi's hot cocoa mix at a time. The spice guy who is putting caring for others above profits. The spice guy who is now, today, pleading that this country do its part and open its door to one million Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing the horror of this country. And you told us, Bill, you told us one of your grandfathers is Ukrainian. So maybe this plea is both personal and universal for you? But for both reasons, Bill, I am with you, man. I will stand with you with fearless attitude in gracious gratitude. There's people everywhere who still choose to care. We will stand with you cause your intent is true. We know the world's still good. Imagine how tough the boycotts are for your business, Bill, and how cruel the hashtags are for you personally, but they haven't brought you down. No, 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 no. They emboldened you to not just keep going, but to own it. Okay, last week you wrote that your newsletter writings were no longer just going to be your opinion. They were going to be company policy. You said, and I quote, before cooking, strength was the power to drive others away. With cooking, strength became the power to welcome others in. Through cooking, we learned the world becomes a better place when we care about others. That was true one million years ago. That will be true one million years from now. It is this strength to stand up for what is right and speak out against what isn't that Penzies will seek to grow. Plus, we have really good spices and seasonings. <laughs> End quote. And all of your newsletters, Bill, they all end with this signature P.S. that I love, and the one from yesterday was just powerful. P.S. A business is only as good as its customers, and if you care about all people and see more value in kindness than cruelty, you will make us even better. Please come be a part of a world filled with every kind of very kind people. Thank you, Bill Penzi. I will stand with you with fearless attitude in gracious gratitude. There's people everywhere who still choose to care. We will stand.
So just a quick PS from me, Bill. Like you, we on the island of discarded women are committed to speaking up and speaking out with the hope of making change, real change. So we would be honored to sell Penzi's products at our shows. Who would buy Pansy spices if we sold them at our shows? Who? Huh? Huh? See, Bill, can you hear the cheer? Can you hear the cheer, Bill? That's for justice and Arizona dreaming and the 15,000 hug blankets that you're giving away right now. You know, I'm all about empowering women, but when a male ally walks the walk like you, Bill, I am both humbled and inspired. Yours in solidarity, Sue Scott. Attention must be paid where it's due. And I will pay the cost if I need to. Pushing through the consequences of speaking my mind. Standing firm in my convictions doesn't have to be unkind. I will stand with you with fearless attitude and gracious gratitude. There's people everywhere who still choose to care. We will stand with you because your intent is true. Zippy Lasky. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Natalie, song number two. Song number two. Okay, so tell us now about this song that you're going to sing. So this is an original piece. My great-grandmother wrote the lyrics. It's from a book of poetry that she compiled of her work, her life's work. Uh, in 1978. This particular poem was written in 1956, which uh, is two years after the event that um, takes place. Um, this was a passion project of mine from a long time uh, ago. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I would see her poetry book on our, our, our shelf and think of, you know, there must be some wonderful ways to apply some melodies to some of these pieces. The words are really kind of powerful. So, um, so I created a project of new Ukrainian folk songs uh, in 2015 to her poetry. And this particular wow. piece. Yeah. yeah, please tell us the name of the piece. Yeah. Uh, in Ukrainian, this is called Vinok na Mohilu, and uh, the translation is 500 wreaths on the grave. Um, it commemorates uh, an uprising in Kangir, uh, Kazakhstan, that happened in uh, 1954. During the Soviet Empire, there were a lot of uh, what were called gulags, or labor camp um, forced labor camps. And men and women alike were part of these camps. They were um, prisoners in these camps and were forced to work. And um, in this particular camp in Kengir, um, about half of the prisoners, um, a little bit more than half of the prisoners were Ukrainians. There were also Armenians and Estonians and, and um, Russians, uh, people of, of all sorts of walks of life. And for about 40 days, the prisoners 
staged a successful riot um, and were actually able to have 40 days of freedom within the camp uh, as a result of their uprising. And there's, if you ever read about the Kangir uprising, it's actually a really fascinating, if not incredibly um, hard to read history. But uh, after a series of events, the, um, the uprising was actually taken down and the uh, Soviet army came in and um, came in with tanks and soldiers and they trampled people. Uh, it was, the official numbers are between yeah. 500 and 700, uh -huh. um, many of them women and girls. And so the song is for them. Okay, Natalie Nowitzki and her husband, Scott Kiever. Uh, the project that this came from was actually written for a choir, so it's all a cappella. And when Sue invited me to, uh, to do this show today, we reconfigured it. Uh, instead of six voices, it's one voice and two instruments. Um, this is a domra, which is um, a Soviet-era instrument that's used by East Slavs, uh, including Ukrainians, Russians, and Belarusians. Степах Херсонщини, арячих, у Дніпрових гірлах, на порогах, по широких степових дорогах. Дочками Україна плаче, де ж мої кохані висконали у лісах от ласу на колимі, у тайзі сибірські не сходимі. Чи в задушних груднях на Уралі? Чула від бабусі, бунт вони вчинили від катів московських. Намагати стали собі прав людини, зате їх безсилих, безбройних чи звірів, танком розтоптали. Там були матусі, доньки, сестриці, старенькі бабусі, молоді дівчата. Добрі, чесні люди, України діти, про них пам'ять в серці мусім заховати. Thank you, Natalie, and thank you, Natalie and Scott. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, please help me welcome our spoken word artist, Brittany Delaney. 
Purple was my favorite color growing up. I didn't have much of a relationship with it yet. All I knew is that it was reserved for the royal and little girls in the heart of St. Paul and townhomes deserved to be princesses just as much as those ones in castles. So the first time he left it on my skin, I thought it meant I was important. I wanna make excuses for him, but the he's get enough attention in my life, so I'll tell you mine. I come from a home of two loving parents that was interrupted by the stories they didn't know. And if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would tell you that the signs were written down the walls, but black parents trying to keep the lights on, food on the tables, clothes on backs, don't have the time to be bilingual. This story isn't new. It ran three generations in our bloodline. I was the recipient of characters who had been breaking the foundation of health for generations and the shattered were sworn into silence because we don't talk about Bruno in this house. We don't acknowledge how many girls love purple and how many boys did as well, but we didn't see it until it was blue and black and cracked out on corners singing its boozy blues to 2 a.m. street lights and coming home to whisper them like haunted lullabies to the girls. And I know this song very well. Heard it from soprano to tenor, man, we have vocalists in this family. So when I met him, I was drawn to his humming. It was like a homing call. In the beginning, the lyrics were different, less haunting. Always said I was beautiful, always said they loved me until they reminded me that my family would never get me. Always said how nobody would ever actually want me and I heard this before. So where two or more voices gathered, it was confirming. The harmful had been like peer mediators, a panel of reviewers. I thought that if I wanted to get my masters in this life, every story would have to go through them. So I moved in circles and cycles until motherhood jarred the will. I tried to tell my story in the past, but social media said pictures or it isn't real. Family vanished and judges said, did you grab a selfie that shows the color will? Because the first thought of a victim is to create a documentary film. What he meant was, Never mind how many people in this house wear purple. Do you have proof that women are made to be more than entryways, more than the recipients of the male gaze and grab, that your innocence is more than a fantasy to be snatched? Can you ask me questions like, what if I was your daughter, your sister, your mother, so I will feel like you are less deserving of judgment and maybe give you justice because women have to be property first to determine their value in the system. And if that isn't true, then explain to me a room full of men deciding on abortion or birth control or why I need the signature of my husband to tie my tubes. Tell me this life doesn't tie my hands. Tell me how liberated I am when half my body count is comprised of people I never tried to let in. This is not equality. This is not a freedom song. These lyrics are still the haunted lullaby sang to one and three little girls in every home. The only thing rare in this story is my stake I take in showing you the patchwork on my skin. It is me speaking up because violet turns to violence in the spaces I grew up in and grew out of. My family does not lift the rug. It's too heavy for some. The weight of every untold story, of every ancestor who stitched the silence into the threadwork, but I had to because I was under it. I could not build a home for my children cuffed to unspoken words. I want them to learn the freedom of the alphabet, to turn the page on every book, especially the ones not told by the victor. I want to tell you a great story of overcoming. Tell you I wear purple in different ways now, maybe even tell you I feel royal, but that is the sitcom version of healing. This one is not linear. 
This one makes me feel like I figured it out by Wednesday, lost it by Friday, and picked it back up on Monday. This one makes me pause before I answer my children in moments of hurt. This one makes me the hearer of all similar songs in a room full of people singing them too loudly to observe who they haunt. This one means our holidays are lonely, but it also means my babies know that their temples are holy, the groundwork for worship, a place where they choose the guest, no more broken locks. I can tell you that my daughter loves purple and God willing, she will never have to unpack this metaphor. I can tell you that my son loves it too and God willing, he will never have to unpack this metaphor. So maybe I'm a little wrong. Maybe this is turning into a victory song. Maybe that little girl in the townhome in St. Paul does get to be royal, get to be a warrior. Either way, this story is for the colorblind deciding justice in a world full of color. Brittany Delaney. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you, thank you. Natalie Nowitzki, come on up. Yes. Thank you. Now this song that you're gonna sing, this next song is also a, an original song. It is. Yes. Yes. Tell us the name of it. So this one is called Moi uh, Rodin, which in this dialect uh, means my homeland. Uh, and this is actually um, a part of a play that I'm working on right now. The um, playwright is in the Seattle area. Her name is Amy Wheeler. Uh, our play is called The Last Babushka. And it's the story of um, these elder women who uh, left the Chernobyl area um, in 1986 when uh, reactor number four blew. And they decided to come back uh, to their home in the exclusion zone illegally, and they've been living there ever since on radioactive land and thriving. And um, they're still there. You're saying they're still there. Well, they're, still there. Yeah, they're still there. Yeah, so here's, here's what's really cool about the play. It's, really, it's inspired by uh, a documentary film about these very people. Um, the documentary is called uh, The Babushkas of Chernobyl. It's by Holly Morris. If you ever have a chance to see it, I think it's still on Netflix uh, or on Amazon Prime. It's wonderful. It's vibrant and it's poignant and it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in this song, um, we're hearing from the three main elder women that we have selected from this documentary and have uh, sort of woven into the play. Um, the first woman, Hanya, the, that you hear from, she is uh, tending to her ancestors' graves, and this is a really important um, kind of ritual for her. There's a lot of reverence in it. Uh, the second woman is very much in tune with the wildlife and with, the, with nature around her. She's kind of an herbalist and really sees all of the plants around her as having healing properties. There's a big reverence for nature. Um, the third woman you hear from is sort of the feistiest, spiciest of them all. She's very fun. Um, and she just has a lot of energy. She's talking about how, you know, she used to go out and dance all the time and she would take the kids with her. And in the film, uh, which I actually incorporated into the lyrics, she says that when she came back uh, to her village, to her home village, 
she grabbed uh, a handful of dirt and stuck it in her mouth because that was her, her homeland was so important to her. She was like possessive about um, being on her land and being in her home. Wow, wow. And you are going to play all those women. I'm going to play all those women. I'm going to do the funny voices. Yeah. <laughs> Nally Nowitzki and others. Yo nikudi ne pidu Завжди вдома я буду, де мой родин, мой родин, роби землю, мой родин, мой родин, я люблю. Я нікуди не піду. Завжди вдома я буду, де мой родин, мой родин, роби землю, мой родин, мой родин, я люблю. Я нікуди не піду. Help me welcome our special guest for the evening, Cheryl Thomas. Cheryl, come on up. Come on up, Cheryl. Thank you for coming. Thank you for and having it's me. It's just an honor. It's a huge honor to be well, here tonight just, with these I think these there's just a lot of energy going on. There's a yeah. lot of energy yeah. going on tonight. Thank you all for coming again. Thank you. Um, I want to go through your bio just real quick for those that don't know. Who doesn't know Cheryl Thomas? Some don't. Let's just go through this. So you are the founding director of Global Rights for Women, the nonprofit that works with leaders around the world to advance law and policy on violence against women and girls through institutional and social change. And since 1993, you've worked with partners around the world to promote women's human rights and to achieve the systemic reform. You've worked closely with the United Nations, uh, you developed a model standard for violence against women. Uh, you co-chaired the United Nations Expert Group meeting to draft a UN handbook for legislation on violence against women. In 2011, you were recognized by Newsweek magazine as one of 150 women who shake the world. 
That's good. That's big. And you've had countless other awards. Okay. I want to find out how you, how this all started for you. But first, I just want to check in with you because it's a very sobering time. Uh, you have a lot of partners around the world. Just kind of want to check in with you and as far as you're just your perspective on what's going on. And I know you don't have programs specifically in Ukraine, but you do in a lot of the countries around there. What is the feeling what, from some of your um, human rights advocates? What yes. is the feeling? It is a um, very, as you said, I think earlier, Sue, it's a very important time. Yeah. It's um, a, t- a time of reckoning. Yeah. Um, it's a terrifying time for our partners um, in all throughout the region. Uh, The women and uh, men actually that we work with in the surrounding countries very closely and regularly are in Moldova and Armenia and um, Georgia where Mm -hmm. we'll be traveling in May, hopefully if we can go. Uh, And these are the countries where the refugees are coming mm-hmm. into. Poland is, is the place where they're, most of the refugees are going right yeah, now. Yeah. But um, personally, I've worked with the women in the region of post-Soviet states since 1992. And uh, I'm in, connect, you know, just we're talking over email and Zoom and all yeah, that right, all of the course. time. And it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's a uh, it's unprecedented mm-hmm. in the 30 years that I've been working in the region. Um, I was in Georgia actually in 2008 when um, Russia invaded there. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, recently in Armenia, uh, the Russian uh, enclave there um, uh, was given up. And oh, yeah. So these are um, signs of a time when. I know if, if you can translate that to um, the global situation, it's all these, all of what's happening in this room tonight is connected. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, a global uh, uprising of autocrats, mostly male, mm-hmm. who don't believe in human rights or democracy or rule of law. Uh, they have, we had one in our own country. Yep, we did. And we still do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we yeah. have m- many of them around. Yeah, the world, exactly, exactly. Right. It's, it, it's terrifying. You wrote in uh, your recent newsletter. You wrote, uh, even before the attack on Ukraine, we were moved by women in the region for their courageous stand to change how women are treated in law and society. And. Let's just start a little bit. I'm just fascinated about how you got into this work in the first place. So you were telling me that um, you grew up in a, in a social justice family. <laughs> what is a social justice family? Well, I think I know. My sister's right there, and okay. my brother's right there, and I'll, I'll just... Uh, That's proof right there. Yeah, it is. She's, actually, my sister is about to leave for uh, Brussels on Wednesday to aid in the... Um, assistance to the refugees coming into Europe. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for doing that. So a social justice family means that at every dinner table you have to 
say yeah. no matter what age yeah. you are how you're going to change the world pretty before much. you can eat pretty much that was that, that was the uh, the definition go, of doing something in our family and cheryl what are you going to do today to change the world can i just have my cornflakes please not until you tell us um so but you we were talking about because we're similar in age uh we were talking about uh you know protesting the Vietnam War and wearing the armbands for the moratorium and all, because I grew up in a social justice family too. Okay, I admit it, I did. Um, how did that then uh, motivate you? So then you went into law school or you, you were saying you kind of felt like you needed to keep sort of family lineage going. That sort of, well, you were, I think it was in our blood. We have four siblings, my older brother also. Um, when, when that's the, the culture, yeah. in the family that those are the conversations at the dinner table um we're privileged we're white we're educated and um that i wanted a tool and yeah. that was what the law was for me and that was what i um found in the law was a tool yeah. to um use as we changed the world <laughs> and gave the marginalized and the oppressed access to justice. That was um, how my, you know, I, I didn't have those those concrete thoughts when I first went to law school. So of course but, not. But that's, but that's but what did, I feel certainly now. Sure, but going back to when you went to law school, did you have, I don't know what you call them, um, high hopes or dreams that you could do something that you could yes. make some change? You did yes, have absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and then that that was what we were here for. Yeah. You know, to, to look around at our fellow humans and use our um, privileges and resources yeah. to make sure that, I mean, remember Paul Wellstone, we all do better when yeah. we all do better? Yes, right. That was right. our, right? Yes, right, 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 right. We all do better when we all do better. Yes. It's, it's, right. it's kind of simple and really intuitive. It is and yeah. um, I think that's, you know, what uh, the people that are like, Vladimir Putin and others throughout the world, you know, there isn't a, there isn't any kind of common sense of thinking or compassion. That way. Well, I think it's interesting. I think, you know, for some of us, maybe when we're younger, it's, you could go one of two ways. It's like, well, what can one person do? Or what is one vote going to make a difference? You know, there's that, right? And then there's the other side going, why can't I do this? You obviously grew up with that kind of thing of, yeah, I can... I can do something here. So then, when did your focus become specifically this violence against women issue? So I practiced traditional law as a trial lawyer for a number of years, 10 years. And when I had my boys, one of which is here. Who, okay, who is not related to Cheryl here? Maybe that's how we do this. Who is not? Nobody has raised a hand. They must all be related to Cheryl. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. But no, they, they, I, there was an opportunity. I, I actually felt really sad that I had to leave my trial law practice because I loved that, but I wasn't the kind of parent that I wanted to be oh. as a trial lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I immediately started looking for volunteer opportunities, and um, I began to understand this massive gap in our um, human rights advocacy kind of global community, and that was women. This was 1992, mm -hmm. and at that point, women's rights had not been identified as human rights. Right. The United Nations had never said that yet. Uh, violence against women was a problem that 
uh, women mostly had to deal with in private, in their homes when they were, where they were raped and uh, at work where they were sexually harassed. It wasn't something for the community to be involved in, much less the legal system. Yeah. And it, it, to me, it was, um, it was such an obvious gap. And I, I kind of looked around and said, why isn't anybody yeah. doing anything yeah. about this? Yeah, right. You know, why, isn't, why hasn't the United Nations said women's rights are human rights and violence against women is a human rights violation and brought the, the resources of the human, global human rights community to bear on what I feel is the greatest human rights violation of our time, and that's violence against women and girls in all of its various forms. Well, and the fact that it's, you know, in Brittany's beautiful poem, beautiful. Uh, powerful poem, as far as it just reminds us that it just keeps going and going and going, and when does it stop? And I know we were talking about this on the phone, too, as far as, ways that change can happen. But what I want to ask you about, I mean, we know the famous 1995 Beijing conference when Hillary... 95. What did I say? 1995. What yeah. did I say? Fourth World Conference on Women. Did I say 1895? <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay. What day is it? I'm sorry. Um, yes, yeah, so recent, you know, when you think about it. So I know. Yeah. Maybe people go, I was born after 1995. You go, shut up. <laughs> anyway, um... Uh, when Hillary Clinton said, you know, kind of Hillary Clinton put that women's rights are human rights. And it was, like you were saying earlier, it was so simple. And yet it was like, we hadn't really thought of it that way before. So basically you, you headed into that direction because you saw a need and an opening? A need and an opening. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There, there weren't, you think about Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, those massive global human rights organizations. Um, they didn't have women's human rights programs. They weren't working on anything uh, to do with the most prevalent form of violence against women in the world, and that's domestic violence. They yeah. weren't working on you know, sexual assault or human sex trafficking. And it was alarming to me. Mm -hmm. So in some way that drove me was that um, somebody had to do something about yes. this. And, and part of it was, um, some of you may know in this room that Minnesota was, a, was the really leader mm. in the world on uh, certainly domestic violence and sexual assault laws. They created the coordinated community response in Duluth, Minnesota, we did. That's been translated around the world now. So we had a sense, at least in those early 90s here in Minnesota, that there was this human right to be free from violence yeah. that women and girls were entitled to. And uh, that, that was rare in yeah. the world, that there was that kind of community sense at that time back in the 90s. Now, I want to I say uh, one thing about this that I think is really interesting. In 2021, you were, uh, you were named as the recipient of the Arabella Babb Mansfield Award from the National Association of Women Lawyers. And this uh, award is named after the very first female lawyer who was from Iowa, went to school in Iowa. You also went to school in Iowa not far from each other, not the same school. Um, and Arabella was a, um, she was active in women's rights in the 1800s and the suffrage movement. And previous recipients, previous recipients, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 
Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, Anita Hill, Amy Klobuchar, and Cheryl Thomas. And that's not, that's not just your family clapping. That is not just your family clapping. I could just tell. They're really loud, though. But here, here's what I thought was really interesting. When we were breaking down, you know, maybe why you were chosen for this award, and you were telling me that it's your focus of using law to build legal norms regarding violence against women in other countries and partnering with women around the world, that that is unique, and that's what Global Rights for Women, that's the way that they are unique. Let's change the laws and criminalize some of this or, you know, or change the norms through the law and that that's unique, which I thought was just fascinating. Good for you. Um, I want to ask you about um, you, well, you founded Global Rights for Women in 2014. There are several other founders in the room here. Of course there are. <laughs> Who's not a founder? Thank you all. Who's not a founder? <laughs> Raise your hand if you did, were not a founder. Okay. All right. Okay. Couple, couple, couple. No, thank you all. So you were talking about how the first time you traveled to Russia was in 2014, right after you you'd founded this organization, and that they were taking steps to legally prohibit domestic violence. And human rights groups were involved, and women's rights advocates who had a lot of hope, right? This was one of the, your earlier partners. And then you were, there was countries bordering, obviously bordering the Ukraine with Russia, Moldova, Armenia. So what laws actually at that time were enacted? So um, at that time in Russia, they were about to, or just had, I'm struggling with the timing a little bit, they had finally, after years and years of advocacy by local human rights groups and women's groups, they had finally made domestic violence, they passed a domestic violence law and made domestic violence a crime. Now, we talk about domestic violence a lot because it's the most common form of violence. Sure. And, it, you know, that it, most sexual assault occurs within the family. Um, the, um, even sex trafficking is very attached oftentimes to the family. So anyway. Oh, interesting, yeah, interesting. They had just, um, were, were really very, um, it was just a dynamic time because there were women's groups in Russia that were making progress mm. on this really fundamental um, kind of releasing of women from the shackles wow. of something so powerful. And uh, that to me is what is so, um, if we can do that, yeah. if we can do that one thing, yeah. release women from the shackles of violence in their private lives in every dimension, yeah. we, will, we will change the world. Yeah. Because we will... <laughs> yeah. Yep, 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 yep. This isn't, no. It's important stuff. You, then you talked about in 2017, Russia decriminalized domestic violence which reaffirmed, right, it went backwards, reaffirmed the patriarchal actions that defy women's equality and freedom from violence. So a step backwards. So when you we were talking earlier, I said, boo. And you said, yes, but there's still so many gains. Oh, so, so many So share gains, some yeah. of those gains. 
So I, I do, um, and, and it, I, they're in these times of horrific crisis, um, I'll never forget Gloria Steinem coming to speak at our event at Global Rights for Women in 2016. It was right before Donald Trump was elected, and she stood up on a stage, and there were probably a thousand people in that room that day, and, and we were all very hopeful that this was going to be a new time, there was going to be a woman president, and the Supreme Court had just... Um, legalized gay marriage, oh, really? Black Lives Matter was on the rise, and there was so much hope. In it. And she said, I am so hopeful too, but watch. Because this is when it is scariest for those who have traditionally held on to power. Mm, it's right. a threat to the very mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. fundamental identity mm -hmm. of centuries of mostly male, power, and um, be careful. And then Donald Trump was elected, and there is, when there is the kind of progress that we have seen in our lifetimes, there is backlash that is vicious. Wow. Vicious, and, and this is what we see in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, look, when, when I first started uh, traveling to the region, uh, post-Soviet states and the Caucasus and Central Europe and Eastern Europe, um, you know, there was not a, a domestic violence law in the 29 countries of that entire region. Mm. It was a different world. Uh, and in over the 30 years that I've been working in this, for one thing, now every country except Russia and, and uh, I think Belarus and possibly uh, Azerbaijan, but all of those countries have worked on their human rights laws and their women's human wow. rights laws. All, all the countries except those few yeah. have these laws now. Women's advocacy groups are working on them to enforce them. Yeah. They have multidimensional human rights programs. Uh, they, they see the connection between, uh, which, which was not true, honestly, in the early 90s, sure. the connection, you know, kind of awkward term, intersectionality of oppressions. Yeah. That is true you know when we talk about the oppression of the marginalized people of color the ukrainian honestly the ukrainian people these dynamics are connected by the relentless pursuit of some who have maintained power and control for centuries that they cannot let go of yeah they can't let go of it right they just yeah. can't let go of it right and it's at every it's at every level so right. it's at every level so speaking of Ukraine and the horror that's going on there, um, what is this doing, and, and let's speak specifically about women and girls, what is this doing as far as the refugee experience, the, the women and girls who stay, leaving their homes? Uh, give me your opinions about all that. Well, um, one thing that we do know is that in times of kind of community collapse, whatever it may be, whether it's a uh, war or a natural disaster, that the rise of violence against women and girls and gender-based violence is extreme. Oh, wow. Okay. So as the structures collapse and uh, there aren't places to go, there aren't shelters, there is also the dynamic of the power and control by the oppressing players. Mm -hmm. All of that deeply affects women and girls uh, as refugees um, and asylum seekers. 
Uh, in, even in you know, the, the United States, where we, Hurricane Katrina, we saw that happen. Oh, the collapse of yeah. society, the vulnerable are the most hurt. And we haven't heard yet numbers of sexual assaults and girls stolen into trafficking, but that will come, we will start hearing that. We will start because those are those are tools of war. Those are tools of war. Yeah, yeah. and it's another way to express ownership, power, power. Yeah. control, is to um, dominate and terrify women and girls. Yes. So how does change happen? What do we do about this? How does change happen? I mean, we were talking about start you, global rights for women. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay, that one started already. <laughs> So now we have to start another one. Family members, anybody, anybody? Um, you were talking about that changing laws, it's like changing the norms. When a norm becomes a norm, and then you have to kind of like, you know, beat against that or something. But it's like, well, that's the norm, and now you're not doing the norm. And so, but that laws are one way to do that. I know I said that really badly, but you no, know No, no, I mean? it's actually exactly right. Yeah. Um, and I, we are challenged understandably what's this law going to do why are what is a you know order for protection law do a criminalization you know the recent sexual harassment um, bill that was passed at the federal level yeah. um, into law you know at every stage I have found because I have been at the table at every stage and what happens is an organic process of when you're drafting the law the stakeholders come to the table there's the police, there's the prosecutors, there's the advocates. Hopefully the survivors' voices are the ones that are leading the way, whether it's through their advocates or not. But the conversation starts, mm. and we begin by articulating the issue and saying it is wrong, and that is what a law does. Yeah, right. I, honestly, what else can do that? So it doesn't yeah. change immediately. Right. But then you go out and start to enforce the law. Right. And you create this, like the Duluth model did, this coordinated that brings in more players. And they, people begin to talk and have spaces to understand women as fully human and their right to be free from violence. Mm -hmm. And um, how do we enforce it? You know, our criminal laws are human rights laws. Yeah, right, right, right. They're human yeah. rights laws. Yeah, right. Um, I was asking you about some of the programs that Global Rights for Women and, and that you are working on right now and what's motivating you. And you mentioned this just now, but you were talking about getting survivor input. Tell us more about that. You know, it's not new. It just hasn't been embraced right. enough, I think, around. We're, in fact, right now, um, we have been doing a number of trainings for, well, back up for a second. Again, I, I refer back to Duluth because it was there that they created the power and control wheel that depicts the different ways that abusers dominate and control and shame and isolate and manipulate the children, all those. That was created from women's voices, their experience of violence. What happened? What did it feel like? What were you able to do? What weren't you able to do? Why did you keep allowing him to tell you what to do, and you learn mm. that it's punctuated by brutal physical violence and that whole cycle continues. But so it's not new right. that survivors' voices right. have been the way to make, to, to listen to them, is the way to make change. Right. You yeah. cannot do it with a manager of the Minneapolis PD saying, well, we need to change this policy or that policy. Because I went to school for it. 
I went to school for it, or yeah, it's going to make right. it more efficient. We're going to get a conviction right. that way. You know, those, if we're going to try to enforce the laws with that kind of guidance and leadership, they won't work. Right. They won't work. In, in the whole intersectionality of oppressions discussion, you know, the laws, for example, that work for white women or heterosexual women and the enforcement of those laws, they probably won't work effectively in the same way for women of color yeah. or LGBTQ women yeah. or immigrant women. Yeah. If you want to have a law drafted and enforced in a way that works, you talk to the people that it is intended to serve. Right. right. We, um, we talk about survivors as if they are separate from us. True. And there are survivors all over this world. Right. Right. There are survivors of violence right. and oppression. Right. And this is what I think, this is the driver for me of systemic change. We come into settings like this and pretend that we're all... Um, Related to you? <laughs> no, sorry. I'm sorry, I just had a moment there. But we, we don't know each other's stories, and right. the reality is that um, this room is full of pain and oppression mm -hmm. yes. and amazing courage. How do we take all that in? How do we take all that in and uh, share with us some things that, that, you're, that you're doing that... Um... There, there's a lot that we can do, uh, that, and we have to do it. Yeah. Uh, right now, one of the things that we're really hopeful about and excited about is, you know, this country, finally, <laughs> we, the Biden administration is drafting a national action plan on violence against women. Oh, now, we, our country happens to be a leader in legal reform and other aspects and a model, honestly, I believe it or not, for the world on the human right to be free from violence. So the National Action Plan will be very detailed and another statement of how a massively uh, powerful resourced country prioritizes this issue. That makes a difference. Yeah. We're also, as a country right now, the Biden administration has uh, appointed a, a group called the White House Gender Policy Council. So not just violence, but all forms of gender oppression and discrimination are being highlighted. And experts, they have, I think, 10 or 12 experts on these issues in the White House. They're part of, with USAID, developing a global strategy to end gender-based violence. And it's, they're just deeply, deeply committed to talking to global leaders and leaders locally about how this global strategy will work and funding it. Wow. So, yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Funding right. it. Right. Yeah. Um, th this, th these are concrete things that need energy. Yeah. Information is power. Inform yourself about them. Inform yourself about what's happening locally. What law are we trying to change here in Minnesota that might make it easier for an immigrant or a woman of color to report violence? Yeah. There's a coalition, Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault. There's a violence-free Minnesota coalition. Those organizations need your energy, your support, 
your knowledge about what they're doing so you can be a thought leader with them. Wow. Just a couple things. Just a couple <laughs> things. Did you all write that down? Thank you, Cheryl, so much for your energy and your courage and your expertise and your, and your heart. And I so appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much to Cheryl Thomas. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay, that's our show. Thank you so much. I want to thank again Cheryl Thomas, Natalie Nowitzki, and Scott Kiever, Brittany Delaney, Zippy Lasky. And I want to thank our engineers, Catherine Horowitz and John Robinson, and Bill Healy, thank you for giving us light. And Amanda Shavik, thank you for taking your pictures. And thank you to our amazing volunteer, Suzanne Egley, and the wonderful staff here at the Women's Club. And yes, we will be back next month, y'all. We'll see you all back here for another live Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Thank you. Thank you.